Our study of God's Word for the next several months will be focused on what they call the pastoral epistles. Uh, that is just a name that essentially represents a trilogy of books that include First and Second Timothy and the book of Titus. And the letters are written to two pastors. And it's easy to figure out who they are. Obviously one is Timothy and the other is Titus. Timothy is leading a church in the city of Ephesus. Timothy is on the island of Crete. Now this morning we're not looking at 2 Timothy or at Titus. We won't for several weeks. Those two books are written under much different circumstances than those surrounding Paul's first letter to Timothy. But our focus now is going to be on 1 Timothy. So stay there. Now if you are a parent, I'm sure you've heard this question asked on many occasions. It's often a one word question. Why? Never heard that? Why? Well, and that may be some of you this morning. You may be wondering, why? Why the book of 1 Timothy? Why are we going there? Well, the answer to that question, I think, lies in another question. Why was 1 Timothy written? Well, that begins several years prior to this letter. There was a man on fire for the spread of the gospel of salvation for Christ. He was used by God to see a few souls saved in a large, bustling, idol-filled city on the coast of Asia. The man's name was Paul. The city, Ephesus. Ephesus was a thriving, influential port city in the Roman province of Asia. It's what is now modern-day Turkey. That city boasted about a quarter of a million people, which in that day and age was huge. It was a mega city. 250,000 people. Ephesus was home of the great temple Artemis, or sometimes called Diana. And that saturated this city with the worship of false gods, rampant perversion of temple prostitution, and every imaginable type of sin. But in the midst of that, in the midst of that darkness, a small fellowship of believers in Christ began. A church. It began in this decadent metropolis and on one of Paul's subsequent missions, he remained there in Ephesus and he taught. He taught constantly. It says day in and day out. And he spoke of the truths of God's word. By the Holy Spirit's work there, the church grew in size and maturity to where it literally glorified God and became such an influence at the city that it threatened some of the economics that were based on production of idols and other things like that to where they were trying to figure out how do we stop this church and its influence. It had really grown. After about three faithful years of hard work and sacrifice, the church in Ephesus was well established and at that point Paul moves on. Luke records this statement Paul made to the leaders of that church in Acts chapter 20 and this is Paul speaking to the elders of Ephesus. Now from Miletus, he, Paul, sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time, from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, 
testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Yet, even at this point, as Paul is speaking, he knows that danger lurks around the corner for this assembly. Paul continues in his farewell speech to the Ephesians in verse 28 of Acts 20. Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Outward attacks. It goes on. Also from among yourselves, men will rise up. Speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. The attacks from without and within. Therefore, watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everywhere, everyone, night and day with tears. As Paul writes this letter to Timothy several years after that speech, the dangers of that warning are now erupting like spots of grass fire on the prairie through the landscape of that church. The savage wolves have crept in from the outside and they have sprung up from leadership inside. They are leading the church towards false beliefs, towards wrong doctrine and enticing the people to follow after these various leaders. The church was being torn apart. The solid foundations Paul had agonized to build night and day for three years, they're now up for grabs. One preacher described the Ephesians setting as written in a time when men and women were quick to plausibility, or quick to give plausibility to anything and certainty to nothing. Does that sound like it, it could have been written last week about our own nation? Let me say that again. Written in a time when men and women were quick to give plausibility to anything and certainty to nothing. To combat this destructive attack, Paul writes the young man Timothy, whom he had left in Ephesus for such a battle. Paul will address in this letter the false teachers, but he will also give instructions on how the church should live, as well as teach important spiritual truths about the nature and power of Scripture, the character of God, the deity of Christ. And much more. Paul writes in 1 Timothy chapter 3.15. He says, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourselves in the house of God. Which is the church of the living God. The pillar and ground of the truth. The instructions he will give will include topics like. How do we worship God publicly in church? What are the requirements for church leadership? He'll speak about the personal life and the public ministry of a pastor. He will confront sin in the assembly. How do you do that? What is the role of women in the church? Instructions on how do you care for widows? And even some things on how to handle money, how to handle finances. But in spite of all that, please do not forget, this letter, this letter is not simply a spiritual treatise packed full of doctrine and instruction. This is a very personal letter. And it's written from one man to another. And you will see the warmth and depth of their friendship and devotion all along. It will be very, very apparent. Paul deeply cares about the church of Jesus Christ. He deeply cares especially about the church in Ephesus where he had invested so much. 
But he loves this man, Timothy. I think we'll see a little bit about why. First Timothy begins, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. A writer sent by God. What is the role of the sent one? Well, Paul's Greek name, Paulus, means small or little. A, sex, a second century writer, way back in those days, described Paul as a, quote, a man of small stature with a bald head and crooked legs in a good state of body with eyebrows meeting and nose somewhat hooked. So you have a little bit of, of physical stature of Paul. Uh, his critics in Corinth said this of Paul. They taunted him saying, For his letters, they say, are weighty and powerful. But his bodily presence is weak and his speech contemptible. But another scholar writes, Whatever his physical stature may have been, his spiritual stature is unsurpassed. He was one of a kind in the history of redemption. He was responsible for the initial spread of the gospel message throughout the Gentile world. His Hebrew name was Saul, which is what he is called in the New Testament until Acts chapter 13. After that, he is called Paul. He was extreme. He was fanatically committed. Paul gave his own credentials in Philippians chapter 3. And here he describes himself. He says, circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, the persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. What a resume. He could have gotten in, in anywhere with that kind of a background. That was who he was Yet it is safe to say that shortly after the crucifixion, burial, and resurrection of Christ, there was not a man on the earth more zealous for Judaism nor more committed to destroying the name of Jesus Christ and everyone who followed him. But, praise God, in the midst of Saul's bloodthirsty vendetta against Jesus, that same Jesus whom he hated and whose name he wanted to erase from the earth, poured out mercy and grace on him by appearing to Saul. Now Jesus didn't show up in the temple as Paul was making offerings or kneeling in prayer. He didn't show up at a synagogue to speak to Paul. He didn't show up to him in the dark of night as he slept soundly. No, Jesus Christ appeared to Saul and knocked him flat to the ground as he was pursuing with all his zeal the opportunity to imprison, kill, and destroy Christians in the name of Christ. That's when Jesus appeared to him. Have you ever thought about Romans 5, verse 8, and 6, and 10, and, and how Paul describes, this is when Christ died. This is when Christ came. This is when he spoke. Paul was at the zenith of his persecution in his hatred for the name of Christ. And Jesus came to him. Knocked him flat to the ground. And in Saul's moment of terror, Jesus gave him a new heart and a new mind. And we'll look at that more in chapter 1 as Paul gives that testimony. 
but it is the most amazing conversion story. This radically changed man, Paul, is now on a new life mission. He has repented with a complete 180 turn from death to life, from hatred to love. He has become one sent by God, which is where we get the word apostle. Apostle. One commentator said, An apostle was one that was immediately sent by Christ and had his authority and doctrine directly from him and had a power of working miracles from him in confirmation of the truth of his mission, authority, and doctrine. A fellow by the name of Wiest describes a New Testament apostle this way, One sent off on a mission or one sent off on a commission to do something as one's personal representative with credentials furnished. That is who Paul is. He is sent by God on the purpose that God has for him, on a mission for God, completely under his authority, but with his authority as well. The title apostle, it often stirs up trouble in these days. There were actually many men who were called apostles in the New Testament. There was Barnabas, Epaphroditus, James, who was a half-brother of Jesus, Andronicus and Junius. But Paul calls these, in 2 Corinthians 8.23, he says, these apostles, these messengers, are apostles of the church. Messengers of the church. They are not in the same category of the apostles that were chosen by Jesus Christ. There's a difference here. And we hear people trying to take on that title of apostle these days. And we need to be careful. We don't need to, to freak out and, and you know, yell back, no, they can't be. Well, there were apostles. And they weren't all the twelve in Paul. But generally, people today want to accept that title of apostle like the twelve apostles. But here's the distinction. When Paul identifies himself as an apostle, he is talking about the 12 men appointed by Christ, minus Judas, plus Matthias, and himself. They are the, as Paul calls them, the apostles of Jesus Christ. The apostles of Jesus Christ. These 13 men were commissioned by Christ Jesus. They learned the gospel from him. They witnesses, witnessed Jesus' words, his deeds, and especially his resurrection. Now, one might say, well, how was Paul in there? Well, Paul was included with them as he calls himself one untimely born. Because Christ Jesus appears to him separately. He appears to him, as I mentioned, on his road to Damascus. Christ Jesus appeared to him. He spent then a long period of time in the desert being instructed by Christ, instructed by the Holy Spirit. It mentions in Acts actually three other occasions in which Christ appeared to him. So the apostles of Christ were also those who received and taught divine truth by the Holy Spirit. 2 Corinthians 12, 12 tells us that the signs of a true apostle included signs, wonders, and miracles. It is a very confined, described specific group when we speak about the apostles of Christ. This was the man Paul. But as he would be the first to declare, so what? He was the sent one. But far more important is who was his sender. The great sender of Paul was Christ Jesus. Now in the documents that seem the most reliable, the order is Christ Jesus. This is Paul's unique way of speaking of Jesus in the pastoral letters. 
There's only one place in the entire New Testament where the name Christ Jesus is used by someone other than Paul. Paul also uses the order of Jesus Christ at times. He does do that. But Peter, James, and John only use that title when they speak of Christ. Now, one might wonder, well, why is that? And, and we do not know for sure. But commentators seem to suggest that Paul speaks of Christ first because that is how he first met him. On the way to Damascus, when he appeared to him, he was Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One, in full. Then he learned more about Jesus after that time. But for Paul, the person of Christ will always be represented by Christ Jesus. The other apostles, as you can imagine, they had known him as Jesus, the man, the Son of God. But it wasn't until after the resurrection that they saw him in his glory and could fully, by the giving of the Holy Spirit's understanding, see him as the Christ. This authority of sending is unpacked further as we get in here. Second part of verse 1. By the commandment of God our Savior and the Lord Jesus Christ our hope. That's a sermon right there. That's probably two sermons actually. But we look at that because of according to the commandment. Commandment here is a word that is strong. It's a word that resounds with authority. The Greek word for command writes one author, refers to a royal command that is not negotiable. It is mandatory. Paul and Timothy and the congregation at Ephesus were all under orders from the sovereign of the universe through Paul, through Timothy, to the congregation. This word comes with such force it is also used when Jesus commands demons to come out of people. He had that commanding power. And this is the commanding kind of verb or, or, or word that is being used here. Paul, Paul was not recruited. He was not coddled or persuaded to become a man sent by God, an apostle. God our Savior commanded him to take the role of sent one, leaving Paul no other options. The king spoke and Paul obeyed. Now the command is cited with two sources there. One command, two sources. We first begin with the sovereign God of the universe. And he is not only powerful, but here we see he is also compassionate toward his children. For that reason, the scripture calls God our Savior. The misplaced and ignorant assumption that God described in Scripture as a ruthless tyrant who must be appeased by His gentle loving Son, Jesus, is blasphemous and completely without biblical support. Today we have these different extremes on who God is. We have people that will tell me, well, well God, really, He would never send anyone to hell. He, he, is, he is so good, He's so kind, He would never do that. I can't imagine God doing such a thing. And, and they have no understanding about the scriptures and who God really is. And then on the other hand, we have those who, who would see God as this, this tyrant. And in, in Roman Catholicism, he must be appeased by Christ, who must be appeased by Mary. And, and we see God in these different extremes. That's why we need the scriptures so badly. When we go to speak about Jesus, we must rely on the truth. 
Not our assumptions, not our traditions, not what we have come to feel is truth. But we must continually go back to the Word of God. And that's where we are. The theme of God as Savior. Or God my salvation. It appears numerous times in the Old Testament. And here are a few glorious declarations. First found in 2 Samuel 22 verse 3. The God of my strength in whom I will trust. My shield and the horn of my salvation. My stronghold and my refuge. My Savior. You save me from violence. Psalm 106, 21. They forgot God their Savior. Who has done great things in Egypt. Isaiah 43, 3. For I am the Lord your God. The Holy One of Israel. Your Savior. Isaiah 45, 15. Truly you are God. Who hide yourself. O God of Israel. The Savior. Isaiah 45, 21. Tell and bring forth your case. Yes, let them take counsel together. Who has declared this from ancient time? Who has told it from that time? Have not I, the Lord? And there is no other God besides me. A just God and a Savior. There is none besides me. And then in Hosea 13. Yet I am the Lord your God. Ever since the land of Egypt. And you shall know no God but me. For there is no Savior Beside me. God our Savior. And then it's echoed in the New Testament. 2 Thessalonians 2.13 Where we are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren beloved by the Lord. Because God from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. God had chosen from the beginning for salvation. 1 John 4, 9. In this the love of God was manifested toward us that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world that He might live, that we might live through Him. It was God's design. It was God's plan all along to send His Son that we might be saved. 1 Timothy 2, 3. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. And then 1 Timothy 4, 10 is an anchor. It's an anchor for seeing who this God is. For to this end we both labor and suffer reproach because we trust in the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially of those who believe. The royal command placed upon Paul came from God our Savior with the intent of saving. But it also came from another source. And it says here it was from the Lord Jesus Christ. Right out of the starting blocks of 1 Timothy, Paul declares the deity of Jesus Christ. And that's what he's doing here. He is Lord, then he is God. But unifying the command of God and Jesus Christ is one. Paul shows here that God the Savior and Christ the Lord are one. They are one in power, purpose, and command. Paul will consistently show this unity and this oneness of God, the Father and the Son, Throughout the letters to Timothy and also in Titus. We'll see this reported, repeated over and over again. And then he says hope. Then this may be for me the highlight of this passage here. What does it mean that Jesus is our hope? What, what is this hope? Romans 8.22 tells us something about hope. It says, For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs until now. Not only that, but we also, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, 
the redemption of our bodies. That is what we are looking forward to. For we were saved, he, Paul writes, in this hope. But hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? We haven't seen it yet. But if we hope, writes Paul, for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. We do not give it up. We know that God has promised. His promises never fail. And we look forward to that time. In Colossians 1.27, that hope is described. To them God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. The hope of glory. We will be glorified. We will be in the presence of glory. That is our hope. Ellicott writes this. Jesus is not merely the object of our hope or the author of it, but He is its very substance and foundation. For those who have repented and believed in Christ, hear this, hope is not a subjective emotion. We often think of it as that matter. Hope is sure. Hope is an objective fact. We can stand on it above anything else that you know of. This hope is certain. You think your home will still be standing when you drive home after church. Yeah, it's probably will. But you don't know that. You think you will even be able to make it from this room to your car in the parking lot. You're pretty confident. But you don't know that. But you know something? This hope, we do know. For it was promised by God. And we can rest on that with sure foundation. A fellow by the name of Mounts, who seems to have a good feel for the pulse of the first century Ephesian culture, he wrote this about hope. The promise of hope was one of Christianity's most outstanding features in a world in which hope had little place. Popular belief was dominated by pessimism. At that time of the Ephesians, the philosophers had dismissed the Olympian gods, but had not replaced them with an alternative that provided hope for people. Most could see only the fear and senselessness of chance and the arbitrariness and finality of fate. Again, there is so much similar to what we see these days in our culture. Here is Paul's assessment of the Ephesians before they came to Christ. He's, it's from Ephesians 2.12. At that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That was the life of the Ephesians. No hope without God in the world. That is specifically why Paul brings in Jesus Christ, our hope. This world of idolatry-filled Ephesians was dark and hopeless. And Jesus Christ pierced that darkness like a literal beacon of hope. He brought to them what they had never known and never could have. 1 John chapter 3 verse 2 says, Beloved, now we are children of God and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when He is revealed, we shall be like Him for we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who has this hope in Him purifies himself just as He is pure. Let me read that again. And please try to think of this, of what is being written by John. Beloved, now we are children of God. 
And it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. Isn't that the most amazing promise? I was in a coffee shop this week. I know a lot of you don't think that's odd <laughs> for me. But uh, I, there was a fellow waiting on me, and uh, he came up to the counter and took my order. And I noticed he had this all black t shirt with a little bit of red on it and a silhouette of a, a band, rock band of some kind. And then across the top of the t shirt it said, Back from the Dead. And it was kind of a morbid looking arrangement there on that t shirt. And, and I looked at him and I said, you know, that could be you. <laughs> and he looked at me and said, what are you talking about? I said, that could be you back from the dead. He said, what? And he pulled up his t-shirt and looked at me again. Well, what do you mean? I said, well, the Bible tells us that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. But Jesus Christ can bring you to life. And he looked at me and he rolled his eyes and he said, I'm a pagan and walked away. That man is hopeless. Now, he's not hopeless if Christ grabs his life. And that's why we try to proclaim this wherever we can. But his way of life is a hopeless, dark way of life. And you could tell it on his countenance. He just, and there may have been something specific happening, but, but you could tell he, he was a man very, very heavy of heart. After he said he was pagan, I did say, well, you know, that doesn't change Jesus at all. And Jesus is our hope. We have a glorious hope. And it is more than we can even imagine. That's another reason why we go to the Word of God, so we can understand more of the treasures and the promises that he has given to us. Dead men have no hope. But Christ is our hope. He is unshakable. He is a confident hope. And he is a hope where none existed before. Then we get to verse 2. And here we speak of a son conceived in faith. And it's all about Timothy's relationship to the one who was sent, the sent one to the apostle. To Timothy, Paul writes, a true son in the faith. Now Timothy's interesting in the scriptures. He is a young man, probably in his early 30s. And the Bible tells us a lot about him. There's a lot of detail. His name actually means one who honors God. His father was a Greek Gentile. His mother Eunice and grandmother Lois were at one time very devout Jews. But at some wonderful moment in their lives, Timothy's mother and grandmother both were given faith to believe in Jesus Christ. 2 Timothy verse 1, 5 says, I call to remembrance the genuine faith that is in you, which dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice. And I am persuaded is in you also. And we know a little bit about Timothy's childhood. It's really, it's interesting here. Timothy's mother and grandmother had both repented and believed in Jesus Christ as salvation. We know this impacted their son and their grandson because Timothy is described by Paul in 2 Timothy 3.15. He says to him, 
how that from childhood you, Timothy, have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Timothy was raised on a steady diet of the Word of God. It is a testimony and it is an encouragement for us parents. Do that from infancy. Bring the Word of God constantly into the lives of your children. As Deuteronomy 6 would say, as you rise up, as you sit down, as you lay down, as you walk along the way, there's not a lot of space in between. Bring the Word of God. Show who Christ is. And that was Timothy's upbringing. Timothy was raised on a steady diet of the Word of God. And this includes parents who are single. Thus, I, I appreciate this about it. Parents who are single. Parents who perhaps one of the spouse is not intent on bringing the Word of God into them. Paul's, or excuse me, Timothy's mother and grandmother constantly brought it in. There's no evidence that Timothy's father ever was a believer or that he ever provided any spiritual influence to his life. It's assumed that he was probably dead at this time. So everyone, take that to heart as you raise children. Bring the Word of God. Then it says he was true. Timothy, a true. And that simply means legitimate as opposed to legitimate. And then he calls Timothy a true or legitimate technon. It, it's a child or it's an offspring. It can mean son, as is sometimes translated. But what Paul wants to communicate has nothing to do with gender. Timothy is one who has been born again by the Spirit of God through the ministry and testimony of Paul. God brought Timothy into Paul's path in the city of Lystra during Paul's second missionary journey. That's where they met. Timothy had a good reputation among the believers there. And from what Paul saw and heard from the brethren, he was convinced enough to bring Timothy with him on the mission. They traveled in ministry together through Thessalonica, Corinth, Jerusalem, and Rome. Paul records that Timothy faithfully stood at his side in prison. Paul wrote this to the church in Corinth about Timothy, his son in the faith. He said to the Corinthians, For this reason I have sent Timothy to you, who is my beloved and faithful son in the Lord, who will remind you of my ways in Christ, as I teach everyone in every church, everywhere in every church. Then Paul writes to the believers in Philippi, But I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly, that I also may be encouraged when I know your state. For I have no one like-minded who will sincerely care for your state. For all seek their own, not the things which are of Christ Jesus. But you know his proven character, that as a son with his father, he served with me in the gospel. You see, he was, he was the man that Paul sent almost like the, the army rangers or, or the, those to go out at the forefront and to hold the battle lines in Ephesus, in Corinth, in Philippi. He would be there. And this traveling that he did with these, I, I've had a real privilege to travel with many of your sons here and into countries all over the world and in some pretty strange situations and uh, demanding circumstances. And there is something that I think about in this. It's not to the degree that Paul did, but, but I learned about those young men and I love them. And they stood fast when we were in moments of danger and fatigue and uh, boredom and excitement and running to the next uh, flight that they're calling our names out over the loudspeaker or uh, who knows. There were just so many different experiences. You live like these men lived and even a much greater degree. Paul loved Timothy. 
They were so close. And it speaks here about the faith. The basis of this sonship to Paul is faith. Timothy came to salvation by faith. He has grown in maturity by faith. And Paul knows that the battles that lie ahead for Timothy in this church will only be victorious through faith. Timothy demonstrated such faith in Christ that Paul was confident enough to place him as his spiritual Navy SEAL in a war within the church at Ephesus. The letter Paul writes is not a peacetime manual on simple church growth. We do not turn to 1 Timothy. This is a manual. Okay, this is how we do this. This is how we do that. It, it will, we'll make sure we do it right. No, this is written in a time of warfare in the church of Ephesus. It is in a life or death struggle for this church. A battle rages and this church is on the brink of being lost. Nevertheless, in the middle of a spiritual war, Paul reminds Timothy of three blessings that are unshakably his forever. And then he tells him where these gifts come from at the end of verse 2. And here we speak about Timothy's relationship to the sender. Not to the sent one apostle, but to the one who sent the apostle. It says, grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. Grace. Grace is a condensed summary, really, of the work of salvation by God in Christ. In the pastoral epistles, grace is the basis for Paul's salvation, for God saving others, and for justification. It is an oversimplification perhaps, but sometimes we can say grace is receiving from God what we absolutely do not deserve. Receiving from God what we do not deserve. Mercy. Mercy can be described as not receiving what we do deserve. Mercy, pity being shown to us. Eternal judgment and hell, the wrath of God are ours. It is what the wages of sin have earned us. But the mercy of God will not bring that upon us through the payment of His Son, Jesus Christ. In Titus 3, verse 5, it says, Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to His mercy, He saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. And then grace and mercy will result in peace. Peace. Peace is a reality. It's not simply an emotion or a feeling. Like we spoke about hope. Peace is not just this sense. In classical Greek, peace was the absence of war. Christ possesses peace and He gives it to His followers. Romans 5 verse 1. Many of you know this verse well. It speaks about the peace that we have. It explains that we sinful men, we, we enemies of God, can be at peace with the perfect, righteous, eternal God. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. A fellow by the name of Murray comments on this verse, and he says, Peace is not the composure and tranquility of our minds and hearts. It is the status of peace flowing from the reconciliation. Do you get that? It's not just a sense of, oh, I'm, I'm at peace with God. It is the status of what Christ has accomplished for us. At the paying of His life. At the resurrection He commanded. 
Peace is a status. It's what we are before God. And reflects primarily upon God's alienation from us and then our instatement in His favor. Peace of heart and mind proceed from peace with God. And it is a reflection in our consciousness of the relationship established by justification. Peace of heart and mind proceeds from peace with God. And that is accomplished by Jesus Christ. Job 14.27, or excuse me, John 14.27. Peace I leave with you, said Jesus. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Brethren, we have peace with God. If we had nothing else but that on this earth, and everything else was just catastrophe and disaster after another, we would have enough. For that is eternity. It is peace with God, and it will someday bring us into glory. Romans 5, we read that. I wanted to tell you, Mounts writes, Believers do not just feel peaceful. They actually are at peace with God. And let me say this. You may not feel peaceful. But know your status if you have trusted in Christ is that you are at peace with God. And the feelings of peace and security that evolve from such a relationship are more secure than mere emotions. Grace, mercy, and peace are freely given to undeserving people. Believers do not just feel peace. They are actually at peace with God. Therefore, the Christian hope is sure. And Paul then again finishes and joins God the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord as our source for grace, mercy, and peace. The Father and Christ the Son are one. There's so much wrapped up into those two little verses about who we are, who God is, what He has done, who Paul and Timothy are. Um, One thing I will say about this, when we went through Malachi, um, there are not as nearly as many outside sources uh, preaching on Malachi as there are on 1 Timothy. But I would encourage you to dig into 1 Timothy. Dig into it in the Word. Listen to messages given. Try to understand what this is all about. We do not have a monopoly on this. I do ask that you really be careful who you listen to, that, that you pick up messages that are from men who stand firmly on the sufficiency of Scripture and understand the doctrines that we preach. But dig in. Understand who this God is. It, it is a most fantastic book. And we want to also ask, I know Brad and Phil would agree, we ask that you pray for us because there will be some things that we try to preach through and work through and instruct that may be difficult for us sometimes to teach and sometimes to hear. And we need the Spirit of God to work in us. Because just as the church there was in danger of wolves creeping in from outside and those from within raising up and detracting from the Word of God, we are in that danger too. So pray much for this particular portion of the body of Christ, that Christ will be exalted here and that we will take this message of the gospel into this lost and dying world. It is a dark place, but we have Jesus, our hope. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you wrote through this man, your sent man, Paul. And you wrote to another man, Timothy, as he stood there on the battle lines. Father, please teach us from what you have said through this. Please give us open hearts and minds. And Lord, where we are in error, where we are are wrong, please correct us. Please grant us humility. Give us a thirst and a hunger for righteousness. Lord, 
be exalted more than anything. Please be exalted and glorified in this brief life that you have given to each of us. For you are worthy. You are king for eternity. In your name we pray. Amen.